So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by American War, the new book by Omar L. Akkad, published by McClelland and Stewart. Head to your local bookstore to pick up a copy of American War today. Hello, Canada Land Commons listeners. Thanks for joining us. This is our second to last episode of the season. Yes, it's true. Jesse is going to give us a summer break. So enjoy this episode. Next week, we dig deep into the rise of the right in Canada. But this week, Amy Goodman joins us in studio to talk about covering the Standing Rock protests. Associate Professor Philippe Legacy clears up a few things about the power of the crown in parliamentary elections. And of course, we check in to see if some things are things. I'm Ashley Chinati. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Hung parliaments here, hung parliaments there, hung parliaments everywhere. From Dr. Seuss slash Canada Land, this is Commons. One of the things I found so fascinating is that Democracy Now! was really one of the only non-Indigenous media covering this story for a long time. And it's a, it's something we've seen play out on this side of the border as well, whether it was Idle No More or other protest movements. And mm-hmm. I'm curious what you make of why it is that traditional, predominantly white media always takes so long to pick up on the big Indigenous news story. Hmm. I think... The corporate media has its own agenda. I mean, they hardly cover climate change. I don't know if it's because every five or six minutes they stop for a commercial, often an oil, gas or coal commercial. But in this absolutely critical last year, this is the presidential election of 2016, the idea that the issue of climate change was rarely raised. I mean, in the general election, the debates between the major party candidates moderated by the journalists or I would call the media personalities Not one asked a question about climate change, about the fate of the planet. And that's why we need independent media. And it's also why Democracy Now! went out. Actually, even that was late. We were covering it before, but we weren't out there before. You know, it was April 1st, 2016. 
a Standing Rock Sioux tribal member named LaDonna Bravebull Allard, a descendant of Sitting Bull, opened her property to the resistance to the $3.8 billion Dakota Access Pipeline owned by Energy Transfer Partners. Now, you know, interestingly, they were not alone. They were like other North Dakotans. The North Dakotans of Bismarck, the capital, said no. Their wishes were respected. But then when it came to the Native Americans of North Dakota, they weren't so lucky. And so they began this resistance. And I mean, it was epic. It was the largest unification of Native American tribes from Latin America, the United States, First Nations of Canada. Thousands of people were there and non-Native allies. People were getting arrested, first scores of people, then hundreds of people. And they marched, they protested, they engaged in civil disobedience. And we're covering the protests. And they're really stunning protests. You have hundreds of people walking the back roads, prairie roads of North Dakota. They often start with a water ceremony. They would face off against a fully militarized rural sheriff's department. I mean, they have MRAPs and tanks, and they're holding glasses of water. The Native Americans, often Native elders, elder women, and they would say, here, This is for you, not just for us. We're doing this to protect not just our children, but your children. And then they would be tear gassed. They would be arrested. They would be beaten. Ultimately, the people succeeded in pushing the bulldozers and the guards and their pickup trucks back. I mean, yes, the Native Americans were injured. They were wounded. But they did prevail. We posted the video online that night. And within 24, 48 hours, 14 million views on Facebook. This gives the lie to the corporate media saying, oh, people aren't interested in these issues. I beg to differ. I think everyone begs to differ. I really don't think that those who care about war and peace, those who care about the growing inequality in our countries, those who care about climate change, the fate of the planet, are a fringe minority. They're not a silent majority, but they're the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media. A few days later, the judge ruled against the tribe. But right after that, like 15 minutes later, an unprecedented three-agency letter, clearly orchestrated by the White House, Obama had just returned from Asia, from Army Corps of Engineers, Interior and Justice, said, we're going to slow down. We're going to evaluate whether Native Americans had input, whether there was an environmental impact statement. Interestingly, the day before, the governor of the, at the time, Governor Dalrymple of North Dakota, called out the National Guard in preparation for the judge's decision. And quietly, the authorities issued an arrest warrant against me. I didn't know this on Thursday. Friday, the judge ruled. Then the letter came out. Interestingly, I had come to Toronto on Friday. I wasn't fleeing, but I'd come to Toronto for the Toronto International Film Festival to speak after the premiere of a film about the muckraking journalist I.F. Stone, who told young journalists, if you're going to remember two words, remember governments lie. If you can remember three words, remember all governments lie. And I spoke after the film, along with Matt Taibbi and Nermeen Sheikh of Democracy Now! And the next day, we're invited to the University of Toronto on Saturday, and we spoke before hundreds. And it was during that talk that I got a text that said, there's an arrest warrant for you. And I'm going, wait, I'm looking at this crowd of hundreds of people at University of Toronto. (laughs) What? Is this a scam? But then I see it's a North Dakota number. And I figure, wow, if there's an arrest warrant for you, you're not automatically picked up. But if you 
have interaction with police or FBI or border guards, you probably will be picked up if it's in the system. So I had to go over the border. So I just asked if someone could call me a cab. And I raced to the airport. I did come back into New York. But, you know, I didn't take the arrest warrant personally. I felt it was a message to all journalists, do not come to North Dakota, which is exactly why we had to go to North Dakota. And also, I want to really send a message to young journalists who don't have the resources to go be arrested, jailed. They just want to cover a story and they shouldn't have to get a record when they put things on the record. And so we went back to North Dakota a few weeks later, uh, calling the bluff of the authorities. And it was in mid-October. I work with an amazing team of people. We flew into Bismarck. And as we landed, the prosecutor quashed the arrest warrant, dropped the charges, and then he brought new charges against me, more serious, where for I could face a year in jail. Riot. Like I'm some one-woman riot? I mean, what was he talking about? It was late on a Friday. I called my North Dakota lawyer. Not that I've had a North Dakota lawyer before. I said, what's this about? He said, you'll be arraigned Monday at 1.30. Well, the good news was we could cover the protests for a few days then until then. But on that Monday morning, we broadcast, you know, the show must go on. We broadcast Democracy Now! at 8 a.m. Eastern time, uh, which was 7 North Dakota time. And so we got a satellite truck and we positioned it across the street from the Mandan courthouse and jail um, so that I could turn myself in after. And so we started the broadcast. We were in front of the Mandan courthouse jail and in between was the Ten Commandments. So we interviewed the chair of the Standing Rock Sioux, Dave Archambault, and asked him if he'd ever gotten arrested. He had for civil disobedience. He said, yeah, low-level misdemeanor. I said, what happened to you? He said, oh, I was strip-searched, put in an orange jumpsuit, and I was jailed. We interviewed Dr. Sarah Jumping Eagle, pediatrician of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. She cares about the health of the kids, one of the first to be arrested. And I said, what happened to you? And she said, strip-searched, put in an orange jumpsuit, and jailed. I mean, how much humiliation can a people take? It made me think of one of the times I was at the airport in Bismarck. A guy came up to me and said, don't think I don't know who you are. And I said, well, who are you? And he said, I'm one of the guards at the site you were at on Labor Day weekend. I said, oh, really? Did you unleash the attack dogs on the Native Americans? And he said, no. We were as surprised as you were. The company had hired several security companies. One of them brought out the dogs. And he said, you don't think I get it? We sick attack dogs on the Native Americans after we've massacred them for hundreds of years. I understand why they're, why they're angry at us. Or as, you know, Winona LaDuke said, the indigenous rights leader from the White Earth Reservation, northern Minnesota, um, Governor Dalrymple, you are not George Wallace. This is not 1965. This is not Alabama. We are through. 1965, Alabama was the front page of national newspapers. This never really was. It might have made a blurt in the news cycle, but we weren't seeing the same kind of outrage to the use of attack dogs 50 years later. Oh, you're right. Um, And so often, you know, the media decides who is important to cover. And this is why we have to bust open the media. We have to open it up to represent the majority of people in this country. I'll say that day of my arraignment, after we broadcast, more and more media was paying attention because a journalist was about to be arraigned. I mean, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Al Jazeera, homepage of the BBC, even Vogue magazine. And by 1.30, the judge decided not to sign off on the charges. And 
you know, hundreds of Native Americans came to show solidarity, but also Native Americans who were being arraigned that day on felony and misdemeanor charges for their protests. A number of them had their charges dropped. And this is what happens when the media spotlight shines in the right direction. This is when it makes such a difference and why it's so important that I won't call it mainstream media. I don't think it's mainstream, but it's so important that the corporate media pay attention. So let's take this back to Canada. The whole arc of your experience covering North Dakota is fascinating. But I'm curious, having gone through that with the pipelines, what you make of the Canadian government's reputation, at least in mainstream press, as being so eco-friendly and green and awesome with this young prime minister who's very photogenic, and yet the reality of the fact that they are building multiple new pipelines, many of them across disputed Indigenous territory. Well, you know, you are more expert in Canadian politics than I am, but I think it is very critical right now to look at what the leaders of our countries are doing, whether they are Donald Trump, who certainly has a very different image than Prime Minister Trudeau. And yet, as you said, he is green lighting a number of pipelines. You know, for one of the first acts of President Trump in office was to, after President Obama said the pipeline should be rerouted in his last weeks in office or maybe not built at all, Donald Trump approved the permit to tunnel under the Missouri River and also green lighted after years of its defeat the Keystone XL pipeline. And that's something that certainly so much cross border organizing was targeted against. And you have the Idle No More movement, which is, I think, a real model for people in this country, Native Americans, to see the effectiveness of people coming together. So you can look at what the so-called leaders of our country are doing, but I think it's also extremely important to look at the movements and how they shape policy. Even in these dire times in the United States, these movements are just gaining steam. We have not seen before this number of protests in a row. And part of that is led by the Native American standoff at Standing Rock. They, they've they built the pipeline because Trump granted the permit. And the company says oil is flowing. But the resistance is also continuing to flow. And people are now looking at the financial institutions that undergird these pipelines. So they're targeting Wells Fargo and Bank of America and Chase. And this is very significant, taking it to a broader level. And I think the borders actually aren't as important here. And the models in um, Canada are very significant for people in the United States of resistance. One common political narrative in this country is that pipelines are actually a safer alternative, especially to rail travel for oil. You know, you mentioned we need to get ourselves off of oil. That's fine. But tomorrow we aren't going to all of a sudden start fueling transcontinental airlines with hydrogen cells. It's just not going to happen overnight. In this country, I think pipelines have gotten a, um, especially among people in the center who are worried about the safety of rail, who might be worried about climate change, but are also worried about the economy and the importance that oil does play, especially out west, to our economy in this country, have gotten a sort of a shrug as a necessary evil. What would you say to them? 
Well, I mean, I too am deeply concerned about jobs. And there is nothing more job intensive than renewables. And the idea that the U.S. could compete when it comes to solar panels, when it comes to wind, this is really important. These are not pipe dreams, so to speak. These could be very real. And I am not saying that the Obama administration moved ahead on these very vigorously. And certainly, uh, Donald Trump would not want to. On the other hand, if he saw gold at the end of the rainbow, and this means so much for this country, if those kind of economic models, I think, would appeal to a lot of people. I think the whole idea that Native Americans are leading the way on around a sustainable economy has to be taken seriously. The subsidies of the fossil fuel economy have to end or else life as we know it will end on the planet. You talked about I Don't Know More being a model for Standing Rock. I find it so funny because there are so many Indigenous activists here who say Standing Rock should be a model for pipeline resistance in this country. What lessons from Standing Rock would you want water activists, Indigenous activists, environmental activists in this country to take away? Well, you know, I think that's up to indigenous and non-indigenous people in both countries to learn from, but certainly in covering these movements, it's the persistence, it's the building of resistance, it's the organizing, it's these camps. I mean, largest unification of tribes in so many years in the United States and the actual, you know, we live in a digital world and that's certainly a way and a social media networked world that people learned about what was happening and then came to the camps. But there is nothing like the actual coming together of people. You know, virtual is amazing, but the actual inspiration people take from each other as we were covering this, what it meant for the people of Standing Rock in North Dakota to be joined by Cheyenne River and Pine Ridge, to be joined from activists and indigenous people in Canada, People found it so deeply inspirational. All right, Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, thank you so much for being on Canada Land Commons to talk about your experience covering the Standing Rock protests. Thank you so much, Ashley. One thing that stood out to me when she was talking about the way there was this slow burn for the Standing Rock coverage, it reminded me a lot of I Don't Know More because it was going on for a long time. And then there was sort of this wide-eyed coverage of like, hey, there is this protest going on. I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was Chief Teresa Spence's hunger strike. There was something that sort of just clicked it over to being a mainstream story. And it, it felt very similar the way she was talking about that sort of reluctance in mainstream media to cover Indigenous protest movements seriously and with a respect and acknowledgement of their concerns as something legitimate as opposed to just being something that's pestering big business. Why do we think this sort of reluctance exists? Like, where does it come from? Because it seems like this is a pretty important issue their goal is to get subscribers and to sell the news. So I don't understand from, a, I guess, from a financial standpoint, why this doesn't sort of come to the forefront. So during early days of the Standing Rock protests, that was right around the time, this is going to sound like a humble brag, but it's honestly not. It's, it's a story. I was asked to start pitching and freelancing for the New York Times on a completely unrelated issue. And the first thing I pitched to the New York Times was 
the life and death of protest movements. And it was based on my experience with Idle No More. I wasn't a key organizer at the front lines, but I helped a lot behind the scenes and helped organize a lot of national events and different things. And I pitched that because I thought what was happening at Standing Rock did have legs and was going to have longevity and was important. And the editor at the New York Times that I was working with said, as far as Indians go, we know they get mad for a few days and then they just move on because they have no power. And I was like, wow, hmm, just you're just really honest with it, aren't you? And of course, nine months later, um, the New York Times starts running op-eds and different columns on uh, what happened at Standing Rock. And so there's an invisibility factor, I think, um, where because I think maybe in the United States, you know, you're talking about such a small percentage of the population that editors just don't have space in their respective publications. And so, you know, it just kind of falls off the side of people's desks. But also, I mean, let's be honest, if mainstream media starts running stories about Indigenous issues on a full-time basis, that confronts Canadians or Americans sort of a deep, you know, psyche where they know there's something wrong and something bad happened, but we as countries have never faced it. And um, this weekend at the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation AGM where I was and the Personal Democracy Forum conference, I was on a decolonizing media panel and we had a 45-minute question period dedicated and every question was to do with Standing Rock. And all of these media organizations were positioning themselves about what they learned during Standing Rock and how they are ready now for Standing Rock 2.0. And my contention, you know, and I kind of lost my shit in the room a little bit, was that you shouldn't be waiting for a Standing Rock 2.0 to, to cover Indigenous issues. In fact, you could make space today. You could do that today, you know. And I heard a lot of feelings when I said that, but when the media will cover Indigenous issues is when there's tires on fire and protesters are being shot with water cannons in the middle of the night in minus 35 degree weather. I mean, that's when the mainstream media starts to pay attention is when rubber bullets are flying. And we, I mean, we have to get past that. It's like when things are so bad that you can't ignore them. Yeah. And like, same with Black Lives Matter, right? Like it took them creating that camp in front of the Toronto police services for people to go, oh, they're serious. You know, they were serious long before that too. They, I mean, we're doing good things before that. So, I mean, I, I really say in Canada, at least we, there's a, an apathy in this country. Like we're, we're comfortable. Everyone generally knows where their next meal's coming from. They're going to punch the clock at five, 5 PM, go to their kids' soccer practice, and wake up at 8 a.m., go back to work. Having that level of comfort in this country, we don't fight very hard for our democracy generally. We just kind of let things roll, roll by us. I think a lot of it is a symptom of the demographics of newsrooms as well, uh, not just when it comes to to diversity, but also age demographics about who's making the calls, because you often find among younger readers, there's much more of 
an appetite to discuss a lot of these social issues. I mean, everyone keeps looking at Teen Vogue's new sort of branding of being really in touch and political with this wide-eyed, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. But I really think it's them responding to what their readers want. And I think this stretches beyond protest movements. Like with Black Lives Matter Toronto, it took a long time for even that protest outside of the headquarters to be acknowledged as well. Like they were out there for like a good week, I think, before they really started getting any any media play as well. Some of it's staffing too, just not, not necessarily always having the bodies to cover things that you think you should be. Some of it is how your existing audience responds. Like I think sometimes it's framed only in terms of traditional business news when it comes to pipeline protests. And I once had someone ask me at a panel I was doing about why don't we cover Indigenous issues between crises better? I mean, we tend to crop up every time there's a suicide crisis on a specific reserve or one particularly heated protest. Like, Why don't we do a better job of, of telling the story in between? And I think it's quite often that there's no one there pitching those stories, like pitching the good news stories. So I, I, I think there's a lot of complex issues there, especially in really cash-strapped newsrooms that aren't doing a very good job of looking at sort of the next generation of readers and they're spending too much energy trying to keep their existing readers. If you are going to send someone from your newsroom to cover, you know, Muskrat Falls out in the East Coast, I mean, I completely understand how expensive it is to cover a story like Muskrat Falls or the Site C Dam out in British Columbia. It takes a lot of resources to to do this. And uh, I completely get it. I mean, the news, the state of news and media today in Canada, you know, this is probably prohibitive to the to the current business models and the challenges uh, we face in that space. But I, I think I think to Ashley's point, I, I really do agree that people are asking for different stories now and different coverage. I think there is a thirst to understand better uh, those relationships on a mo- more full-time basis. I see it in the work we're doing at Indian and Cowboy. I ran a very informal Twitter poll on my Twitter. 600 people took the poll and I asked if you were Indigenous or non-Indigenous and if you listen to our podcast, uh, how do you self-identify? Uh, close to 70% self-identified as non-Indigenous that, that took the poll. So I think that there is a thirst there for non-Indigenous people to better understand the stories and I think there will be a time where, where, you know, whatever we call legacy media or mainstream media figures that, figures that out and uh, understands the value of having those voices in a more full-time space. I, we asked during the appropriation prize debacle, asked the same questions. Why isn't there a, you know, a full-time columnist at the Globe and Mail? covering Indigenous issues. If you look at the Toronto Star and the work Tanya Talega is doing, I mean, she's doing fantastic work covering Indigenous issues for a mainstream press. And you, the, the results are there. I mean, it happens at the CBC through CBC Indigenous. We're turning a leaf. It's exciting. It's, it's uh, encouraging. This is a time maybe we didn't think was going to come really in this country, uh, you know, this quickly. But we're here. Duncan McHugh has created a resource for mainstream journalists to cover Indigenous communities. It can be found at riic.ca, Reporting in Indigenous Communities. It's an incredible uh, resource from blog posts to the actual physical guide that you can download. And it's about building relationships with those communities. And covering Indigenous issues can be hard. Wamish Hamilton wrote something for Discourse Media about uh, the freedom of press in Indigenous communities and how difficult it is to cover 
indigenous politics or or the goings on in indigenous communities because of the way indigenous communities run sometimes through their their band council system traditional council systems you know you go, go sit in a ceremony where elders and leaders are making decisions and it's a pipe ceremony well you might have to leave leave your zoom h4n at the door you know <laughs> no recording the ceremony so it's an interesting challenge challenge for sure Today's episode of Commons is brought to you by the new novel by Omar El Akkad, American War. Set in a flood and diseased ravaged U.S. in the not-too-distant future, American War explores the state of the country as a second civil war is underway. We spoke with Omar El Akkad about the rise of the dystopian fiction in the era of Trump and how much the current state of affairs influenced the book. When I started writing the book, I, I, I knew going into it that the US was in a place that was that was more polarized than almost any time in the last hundred years or so. But did I think that a borderline fascist with, with no government experience would be the most powerful man on earth? No, of course not. It's one of those strange situations where because the book is coming out at the time that it's coming out in, there's an element of, of you know, is this prescient or is this uh, predicting the future or so on and so forth. In reality, if I had predicted everything that that has happened this year and and set that as part of a novel and tried to publish that novel three years ago no publisher in the world would have would have accepted it it would have seemed far too too surreal too far-fetched i think the book deals a lot with this idea of not having not being sure what you know where your roots are or or what you can go back to what you can sort of seek solace in what stories you can seek solace in what communities you can seek solace in um, so I think that was that was the major way it, it played into the into the writing of it. Head to your local bookstore today to pick up a copy of Omar Alakad's American War, published by McClelland and Stewart. We are now at that part in our show where we highlight some news items or some things that people think might be news items, and we determine whether or not this is a thing we need to be upset about, care about, push forward about, push forward on. Um, so. Are these things things, Ashley and Ryan? Will they be things today? Who knows? Let's get into it. So the Toronto Star's Chantal Bear had an interesting column over the weekend saying that a number of the rookie cabinet ministers, especially the very young women in Trudeau's cabinet, have basically been used as cannon fodder as opposed to given a chance to succeed. So we saw this with Miriam Monsef in Democratic Institutions. Then she was shuffled off to work in the Women's Directorate or Secretariat. Is even a full ministry status of women ministry? I guess so. Karina Gold was brought into take over that portfolio, one of the youngest cabinet ministers, the minister in charge of uh, Melanie Jolie in charge of the Heritage Ministry, who was in charge of this bungled, massively bungled appointment of a new languages commissioner when they were trying to appoint a former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister, who's a very qualified woman, but clearly a partisan into a watchdog role. And the list sort of goes on. And so she details it. And her point isn't that Trudeau did a bad thing or was reverse discrimination with his gender neutral cabinet. It was more that some of these ministers had zero experience even in the House of Commons and maybe needed to get their feet wet and the back benches before being elevated to meet optics. And I thought it was a very interesting and much more nuanced point that a lot of people have have taken and tried to make 
like a denunciation of what they call identity politics. But I actually thought she made a really good case here for people sometimes need experience before they are, say, leading the government house leader, Bartish Chagger, had not been in parliament until a couple years ago. Well, I mean, it ties somewhat to the notion of the glass cliff, which I actually talked about with Jesse, where women and minorities often sort of get these leadership positions when they are more tenuous or more fragile. So you might know more about, you know, are these positions they were pointed to, were these seen as sort of more contentious positions or things that they'd have to deal with sort of more tricky issues or at least more politically tricky issues? Or were there also other women in the cabinet who had more experience that kind of got passed over for these women? Well, the problem with their caucus is that so few of them had extensive experience. Like there were a handful of people who'd been ministers back in the Martin days, but not many. Some people who'd been parliamentarians for a long time, which is an important and good thing. I mean, let's also talk about Christia Freeland, who'd never been a minister before. She's held two really important portfolios, is doing a very solid job on that. It's not like there weren't qualified women for these positions, Mm -hmm. but I think what it was is the I think the PMO didn't necessarily have their backs enough or they did put them out there essentially. Or they didn't give them enough training essentially to Uh, handle these positions. Or as you said, they put them in a position that was never going to go well. I mean, Miriam Monsef, let's let's be real about the fact that what went wrong in democratic institutions and electoral reform wasn't her deciding to pull the plug. This was the PMO's ball game from the beginning. So it's from the central, she was just the messenger set up to fail. And I think now with Bartish Chagger, those weird rules to change the house that she was left defending and parliament ended up being essentially deadlocked for a few weeks. Again, she was set up to fail. And so I don't know if the glass cliff is the right term, but I think it's a combination for them of inexperience, so inability maybe to push back against those central powers And the fact that these positions were given immediately contentious ideas to implement from the powers that be. I mean, I kind of want to be protected when I sit in a big chair like these. I kind of want to be protected by uh, my coworkers and the people that surround me so that you know, first day on the job, I'm not opening up gigantic file folders (laughs) with the pressure of Canadian democracy on my shoulders to make the right decisions. I think it bring, I think this article brings up some good points. So what are we saying about this? Is this a thing? It feels like one. Uh, what are you two saying? I think that they need to support people they're putting in these positions. They need to not set people up to fail. And I think that if this is something that is happening and is happening predominantly to women, it's definitely a thing. And I guess that's the question is, is it happening predominantly to women. And that part of Eber's argument, I might say, is not a thing because we've even seen our new defense minister, who's a very seasoned soldier, stumble into a unnecessary political gaffe, perhaps just from the mere fact that this is really his first go at being a politician. So I'm going to go with it's a thing that there are some rookie ministers who probably should have had more time on the backbenches. I'm going to say at this point, it's not a thing that it's gender based. So recently, uh, everyone's 
favorite Global Mail columnist, Margaret Wente, wrote a piece about Canada's war on merit, um, where the liberals, according to her, are threatening to cut university research funding if they aren't diverse enough. And she thinks this is a bad thing. Um, Andrew Scheer, the recently elected leader of the Conservative Party, uh, wants to do this and limit funding if they curb free speech. Are these two sides of the same coin? Are we politicizing research when it shouldn't be politicized? Is this a thing? I'm going to go with it's a thing. And I think that, A, the federal government shouldn't be telling universities what they should or shouldn't do. Now, I understand that they do control grant and research funding. So saying we want to give grant and research funding for certain areas, great. But what I don't like here is either whether whether it's sheer and this false flag free speech debate or the liberals and what is an ideology you could say is on the side of the angels putting prerequisites on free thought in our institutions. I think if you want to say we want to encourage more women in science and technology, then you set up grants specifically for that. If you want to help more Indigenous people succeed in science and technology, like have your baseline grant funding that the universities are used to getting. Let them do their award systems for that. And then if you want to target specific areas, like they already have programs targeted at that, you can do a comply or explain system. Like these targets are not that high. It's not like they're saying you have to have 50-50 women. It was 30% women. I'm asking for 1% Indigenous representation. Like we're not talking about ridiculous anti-meritocratic numbers here. But I get wary regardless of what the ideology is behind it, when we start saying universities need to fit my political beliefs. At the same time, what we've been doing is not working. So, I mean, there are people who fall on both sides of the gender quota and no gender quota debate. And no quotas is not working. Like the prediction is like we're going to reach 30% of women on boards from like 100 years from now. So if we want actual change in our lifetime, we have to do something. Is that not is not saying that you need to have 30% women and 1% indigenous and 4% black. The same thing as saying we're giving this much money for black scholars and we're giving this much money for indigenous scholars and we're giving this much money for women scholars. It's just saying it in a different way. And there's research that shows, I mean, for Wente, she was saying that this was going to sort of impact the quality of research that we were getting. And that was something I had issue with because that is A, saying that a predominant white male slate signals more equality when we've never had the opposite. So you actually can't compare. And there's actually research out there that shows that when you impose quotas, what happens is mediocre men get cut. The men who are qualified stay. It actually raises the competence of everyone because the mediocre ones get cut. They tend to surround themselves with mediocre followers because they don't want people who are better than them. Um, There's a really great study that happened um, of Swedish political leaders because they did impose a quota. And it did show that over time, the competence of the leaders went up sharply and who lost out were the mediocre men, the mediocre politicians. But then you ended up with strong female politicians and strong male politicians. Um, And that's something that she didn't address, that these quotas actually will bring out the best of the people who are not getting a fair shot and weed out the ones who really shouldn't be who really shouldn't be getting the chances of getting the shots, um, but they are because they're benefiting from a patriarchal white supremacist society. 
I got nothing. She said Hadia way more eloquently than I could have. I was going to digress as well and say, is the state of Canadian universities and colleges to blame with our our frustration with the system? Is it because Canadian universities' resources are depleted to the point where departments don't really have the resources to do the proper recruitment of students and our universities finding the right students to come into these programs to take these positions of prominence because of the state of Canadian universities? They are struggling. And I mean, there's only so much I think you can do on the recruitment side. Like you have your recruitment open, you can target particular groups, encourage them to apply, but whether or not they ultimately applies kind of up to them. And they did note that women, um, they get fewer applicants, uh, applications from women for uh, some of these positions. But, you know, I think we have a problem stemming from like the minute they start school in grade five, like the minute we start to separate, tell people that boys are good at math and girls aren't. And it's it's a systemic problem. And you're just seeing the end result at the university level. And I think that's why a quota like we've done with boards, like a comply or explain might be the best thing now because it is a pipeline issue. Like we can't just start at university. It has to start further back. And then you can build up the supply of the researchers you you need. What I think would be really interesting to see would be an analysis of rejected grants and, you know, who isn't getting them right now as well. Because I think when you all the points you make are important. Like, I think you should have more types of research, more types of people doing research. And if if using quotas makes people more conscious of looking beyond who they would normally look at, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think where I get squeamish is not just the fact that, A, the federal government isn't technically the jurisdiction in charge of our Education, universities, yeah. but B, that when you start talking about taking funding from universities for political reasons, again, whether it's the conservative, the new conservative leader saying if people are not upholding free speech, whatever that means, because you'd have to define yeah. that, or the liberals doing it for things that fit a political ideology, That's that just tends to be the thing that gets me a little bit squeamish. It's like you're concerned that the same permissibility could be used in a dangerous way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I w- did want to say this when it comes to diverse candidates and people of color in particular, if I see a black professor or I see a black female doctor, that is the doctor I want. Because I know for them to be considered as good as their equals, they are likely twice as good as their equals. So give me the black immigrant female doctor from Kenya. I will take her every time over the white dude. (laughs) Well, I guess that's a thing. (laughs) Is this a thing? I think it's a thing. It's a thing. Woo. The next thing is the are the rumbles about the CPC vote count and there's some shit about the count having not gone. I honestly team I scanned it. I put it on our list. I don't know why the fuck I did it. Are we is this a thing? CPC vote counts? Well, Kevin O'Leary thinks it's a thing. He didn't finish the race, but he's the only one calling for a recount. I think that Brent Rathberger put it best in a piece for iPolitics saying that Maxime Bernier is taking one for party unity and bowing to the powers that be. And I guess this whole new open voting system for political parties is going to take some time because at the end of the day, this feels a lot like an old delegated convention where the powers that be had the final say. I don't think it's a thing. 
There's just a whiny baby named Kevin O'Leary. <laughs> I guess it's a thing anytime that it, there's the suggestion that an electoral process might have been fiddled with or not as fully open and transparent as it should have been. That said, n- none of the other candidates who actually finished the race are making it a thing. So I don't think this is a thing that's going to continue to be on our radar. I don't think this is going to cast a pall over Andrew Shear's leadership. I do think it's disappointing for people who maybe did want to have some of the debates that Bernier was going to bring the table, say, about supply management, about opening up our telecoms. Like Those are conversations I really would have liked us to have. I was very much Team Bernier until he did that red pill meme. So I'm going to say it's not a thing in the long term. I think it is something to keep in mind that political parties are always going to be their own bosses in a way. I think it's slightly thingy that Kevin O'Leary once again has found his name on our show. His name is on the Canada Land show this week and it's creepy and I believe he is Satan. <laughs> <laughs> How does he keep ending up on this show when we <laughs> have said time and time again, no more O'Leary. We get to move on. And here we are. You know what, though? We didn't talk about Kelly Leach at all. So that's a small mercy. <laughs> <laughs> Dying a slow political death. All right. This is your last chance to be heard on Canada Land Commons. If you have a thing that you think might be a thing and you'd like us to talk about it, you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Again, our show next week is our last week before our break. So this will be your last chance to have your voice heard on the show. Commons at canadalandshow.com. It's been a good few weeks for parliamentary procedure nerds. Between the BC election, which resulted in a hung parliament and an agreement for the BC NDP to govern with the support of the Green Party, while Liberal Premier Christy Clark seeks to hold power over a legislature where she's one seat short of a majority, and on Thursday, the United Kingdom's election, which also resulted in a hung parliament. Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May lost her majority, but she still holds a plurality of seats and is seeking to govern with the support of the Democratic Union Party from Northern Ireland. Both elections resulted in speculation another election isn't far off or the Queen or her representative may decide the vote, despite centuries of convention to the contrary. Amid all this misinformation, what's clear is we don't have a great grasp of Westminster parliamentary procedure in this country. Here to help us clear up a few things is Philippe Legasse, an associate professor and Barton chair at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Good afternoon, Professor. Good afternoon. Just a quick note to our listeners, we are taping this interview on Sunday afternoon, so by the time you hear this, British Parliament will have convened, so a few details may have shifted. So let's get into it. First off, let's clear something up that's been driving me absolutely bonkers. Why is it wrong when people say the Queen, or in the case of BC, the Lieutenant Governor, may settle an election? Well, it's uh, ultimately, we have to realize a couple of things. First off, um, the crown, so let's use that as kind of the umbrella term for both in this case. So the lieutenant governor is the queen's uh, representative, official representative in the provinces, uh, and therefore exercises the crown's powers in that context. And in uh, the UK case, let's just, the queen is the crown. So let's use that as the umbrella term. The, the underlying issue here is that the Crown does not act absent advice. 
So that is how we moved away from the Crown being involved in the affairs of government and day-to-day into the system what we call responsible government. Uh, the Crown acts on advice. So the first principle that we have to uh, adhere to here is that the, the Crown is not going to make decisions on its own, and it's certainly not going to make decisions without consulting the, the major players that are involved in any kind of election, namely the party leaders, premiers, uh, prime ministers. So that means that essentially the Queen or the Lieutenant Governor isn't going to say to a premier or someone who comes up to them and wants to form government, hey, you don't have the right to do this, you didn't get the seats. Right. And that's the other important thing we need to realize. Um, the Crown will always prefer, when possible, to have an under, another institution deal or give it a, a clear understanding of the lay of the political land. So in the case of both BC and the UK, the Crown is not going to dismiss uh, Christy Clark as Premier, nor is she going to dismiss Theresa May as Prime Minister simply based on a hunch or where the political winds seem to be flowing or anything like that. Nor is the uh, the Crown going to invite uh, Mr. Horgan to become Premier in BC simply because they have an agreement already with, uh, with the Green Party. In both these cases, the Crown is simply going to wait, allow either Premier Clark or Theresa May to meet uh, their respective houses, and the reason that they do so is because they are still First Minister. There's nothing that has changed. They have not resigned, and they have not been dismissed. And so the Crown is not going to act until either one of those two uh, people ultimately chooses to resign, and at which case the Crown would invite somebody else to form government, or until there's a request to dissolve the legislatures, uh, which in the UK case no longer belongs to the Queen as a decision. It's no longer even her power. But in the British uh, Columbia case, the Crown's not going to call a new election unless it gets advice to do so. So these are what we call unwritten conventions in our parliamentary system. That seems to be a big part of the confusion here that Canadians don't seem to understand that we have both a written and an unwritten constitution. Do you have any idea why that might be that we have such a hard time grappling with this? Well, I think in part because we're, we're next to the U.S., and therefore, uh, this is one thing that I struggle with a lot when trying to communicate these concepts, is we've just uh, been surrounded by so much information about how the U.S. system works that we import a lot of the language from that, and that clouds a lot of our understanding. Uh, so when we talk about, for instance, um, forming government, even when it's the same premier, we, 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 we like this idea that somehow an election is ultimately decides who governs, but it's not like that, right? So Premier Clark, for instance, isn't forming government. She just stays on. Same with Theresa May. She just stays on. But we like this American idea that elections are decisive in terms of determining who governs. Similarly, I think uh, we're just not used to this system. We don't learn it. Uh, It's not something that's really taught all that well in uh, the high schools. It's not something that we uh, pay a lot of attention to. It's actually a pretty complicated system. Uh, We try and reduce it down to to simple kind of sound bites, but it's actually a system that's very complicated and it has to be understood in its various nuances. And frankly, you know, as Canadians uh, and as uh, Canadian governments go, those who understand it tend not to talk about it. We, you know, it still operates very much in kind of a Westminster type of shadowy world where there's certain people that have very specific knowledge about this, but they don't really share it with with the public. And finally, uh, I would say that there's not to denigrate anybody, but there's a number of people who kind of somewhat get it, 
but not really. And they're so confident in their views that they kind of put misinformation out there and that just kind of confuses things even more. So just to give an example, I won't name any names, but when politicians write letters to the queen or to the governor general asking them to act in a particular way, it fundamentally distorts understandings of how our system actually operates. And this is something the UK seems to do a lot better than us. I think it's a combination that their reporting is stronger in communicating the nuance of the parliamentary system. Are they just better used to it? Like they don't have this American influence and they've had it for so much longer? Because when I was watching the coverage out of the UK, I mean, even the more tabloid press was pretty clear in what, what's actually going on here. Yeah, I mean, I do f- feel that the, the proximity to the US does hurt us and we we like to borrow their terminology. Uh, as well, um, I think a big difference in the UK is that the uh, the Parliament over there and parliamentarians really take their particular role seriously as members of that body. Uh, and they, they view that as a fairly important part of their system. So one thing I've noticed in my own research is that British parliamentarians tend to see themselves as parliamentarians first, uh, party members second. And as a result of that, they, they pay a lot more attention to the powers of Parliament and, and how it concerns it uh, versus RMPs and MLAs who tend to see themselves first and foremost as foot soldiers for their particular party and will speak in, in ways that you know could distort or hide particular aspects of how our system works if it gives them a partisan advantage. Uh, the, the, the other point that I would make is, in the UK at least, uh, following New Zealand, they've written most of these conventions down. They've codified them in manuals that make clear how they operate. And parliamentary committees in the Library of Parliament in the UK responds to them. And they offer their own perspective on them. So they're actually a good dialogue about how these conventions operate, how they should operate. And so that makes an enormous difference. In Canada, again, we don't have a manual, that, and certainly none of the provinces do, that clearly lay out how government formation operates, what it actually does, what's actually going on, and therefore the, the commentators, media, the general public isn't really in a position to kind of grasp these things, right? So before, I really want to drill into some details on BC, but I have one more question about the UK, because you mentioned how in the UK, parliamentarians tend to identify as parliamentarians first and aren't quite as sticky in party loyalty. Now, if we look at the makeup of the parliament that was elected, there's 750 seats, 326 are needed for a majority. The Conservatives got 318, Labour 262, the Scottish National Party 35, the Lib Democrats 12, the Democratic Union Party, this Irish party that's all of a sudden the power broker in their parliament, 10, and other small parties, 13. But the two key numbers here we need to talk about are those 318 for the Conservatives and the 10 for the Democratic Union Party. So combined, they still only have 328 seats. If one of their members becomes speaker, then they essentially have 327 seat majority in a 750 seat parliament. How on earth do you whip that vote well enough to maintain power for any length of time. It just seems like this isn't a parliament that's going to be set up for success unless the Lib Dems decide to play ball a bit. Well, it's really important that we not cast Canadian eyes on on how the British parliament functions. So we have to step back and first understand what the customs that surround British parliamentarism are. So their conventions around the speaker, first off, are a little different. Generally, the speaker um, is run unopposed and maintains their seat, and therefore you kind of don't have that same dynamic. 
Uh, number two is ever since they passed the Fixed Term Parliaments Act in the UK, you can't, you don't even defeat a government on a budget bill. Okay, so the only way you can defeat a government is to explicitly pass a motion saying that you have lost confidence in the government. Uh, so governments in the UK basically can just be uh, strung along one way or the other way by the legislature and never really lose or be brought down. They have to be brought down explicitly by the House. So on the one hand, that gives parties more advantage in the sense that they, they don't have to, to ensure that they whip every single vote in order to make sure they stay in power. On the other hand, it means that the legislature doesn't really have an incentive to you know vote with them in order to avoid an election because as well, the Commons in the UK has to vote for another election, for an early election, as happened uh, with Theresa May. So we tend to say, well, Theresa May launched an early election. Well, yes, but she also needed to get major labor support to do so. Otherwise, it couldn't have happened. So that's the first thing we need to recognize, is that UK governments are not in the same kind of precarious day-to-day -day situation as Canadian governments might be, even around uh, questions of supply. Now, that also means, however, that UK parliaments, uh, particularly in the past decade, have seen a lot of voting and, and uh, backbench rebelliousness. So you, as long as you craft your budgets in a way and you craft your legislation in such a way that you can get the support of other parties, even if you lose some of your own backbenchers, it's really a question of coalition building uh, for each bill that comes forward, right? And therefore, there's a little bit more legislative involvement in, in, in crafting legislation, a bit more legislative involvement even in the supply process in the UK. And so it makes it possible, even for what seems to be a hung parliament, to muddle along in a way that won't be the case, let's say, in a Canadian setting. All right. So let's turn back to that Canadian setting and talk a little bit about BC, where all the focus right now is on the election of the Speaker when their parliament comes back on June 22nd, which will be over a month and a half after the election itself. So as I said earlier, the Liberals there have 43 seats, the New Democrats 41 and three for the Greens. Combined, the Greens and the New Democrats have 44 seats, technically enough to sort of work together and unseat the Liberals. But the Speaker election complicates all of that. So if the Liberals give up a speaker, then they're more easily beaten. If the New Democrats and the Greens give up a speaker, then they essentially almost can't bring down the government, right? So how do you think this is going to play out on June 22nd? And feel free to correct me <laughs> in anything I just said there. Yeah. Okay. So the, fir the first thing we need to recognize is um, the idea that uh, the speaker should come from the governing party isn't a convention, it's a custom. So what we mean by that is it's something that normally happens, but it's not considered a constitutional rule, right? So the Liberals will, in all likelihood, put up their own speaker. This seems to be the indication coming from Premier Clark in order to allow themselves to get moving and offer a throne speech. Uh, so let's assume that's the scenario that happens. Then Clark meets uh, the legislature. She is defeated. And then that's uh, when the, uh, an interesting question arises. Will the Liberal Speaker resign at that point? Now, getting back to this idea that it's only a custom that the Speaker come from the governing party, there's nothing that, that obliges that Liberal member from stepping down. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it would be... It would be in the interest of the BC legislature for that Liberal speaker to simply stay on uh, after the defeat of the Liberal government and play kind of the neutral speaker role, 
right? That would allow this legislature in BC to actually function, uh, and it would not involve a lot of the stretching of conventions that surround uh, the speakership in that legislature. However, what we're likely to see is that Liberal Speaker resign, at which point uh, either the NDP or the Greens will have to put up a speaker. And once they do so, that speaker uh, in all likelihood will need to support the government on most, uh, if not all, legislation. And that would be, it's not going to be moving outside of convention because it is still a tie-breaking vote. But some will be concerned, and I can say legitimately so. Uh, there will be some legitimate concern that the speaker is going to be effectively uh, simply a partisan that is occupying the speaker's chair and that will taint all the other things that the speaker has to do in terms of adjudicating debate, in terms of ruling on privilege questions, in terms of all, all the impartial things that a speaker is supposed to do. And then we, we also get into kind of other questions. Number one, speakers are supposed to keep debate going. They're not supposed to necessarily cast a deciding vote on things, but if a speaker ends up voting for supply and they end up voting for legislation, then that's stretching those conventions. Really, I would say the, the, the most egregious violation of convention would be the, the following scenario, where Premier Clark refuses to put up a liberal MNA, MLA to be speaker, effectively daring Horgan to put one up. Horgan puts up an NDP or green speaker uh, with Weir's consent, obviously, and that speaker is forced to vote to bring down the government. Um, now, that would be seen as a clear violation of convention to have a speaker voting non-confidence in a government. Uh, so it, we, we're not quite sure how this is going to play out yet, but it, it seems like if you're playing it really dirty, uh, the Liberals have a lot of options here where they can, uh, they can make the NDP and the Greens look pretty uncouth. But my concern is they're being as uncouth, right? There, there's, a, there's a clear solution here. The honorable thing to do would be to have the Liberals put up a speaker, and once they lose confidence, to retain that Liberal as the speaker. Okay, so just to be clear for our listeners, because I think this is a point of confusion for a lot of people, the Premier remains the Premier after an election, even though Christy Clark had that fancy swearing-in ceremony this week. But when Parliament dissolves, the old Speaker is no longer the Speaker. Unlike you said in the UK, there's no one who would just automatically by default be the Speaker. On June 22nd, we are going to have this showdown over who becomes Speaker, no matter what, right? Right. I mean, it's um, once once the legislature is dissolved, then there is no longer a speaker. So the first thing the legislature has to do when it meets before it can do anything else is find a speaker. And this is why some people have been talking about the possibility of another election, that if you can't find a speaker, if the parties can't agree, then the only solution would be another uh, uh, another election. I don't think we're there yet, simply because it's not really in Clark's interest at this point, because she might want to put together her throne speech, which will effectively be an electoral platform, I suspect. Nor is it in the, the NDP and the Greens' interest, because they want they would rather govern, right? They have a chance now to actually govern, even if it's only for a few months. Uh, I think they would rather go into another election in a couple months as the governing party than uh, facing Clark yet again uh, with her throne speech that will probably promise everything under the sun. So how you sort of see this playing out a bit is that Christy Clark will convene the legislature on June 22nd. The liberals will put up a speaker. They'll put forward a throne speech. They'll be defeated by this NDP green cooperative agreement because it's not a formal coalition. 
And then the NDP and Green will struggle to govern for a bit with either the Liberal speaker or with a speaker from their own party. And there could be questions about partisanship in that. And then BC will possibly end up in an election within the next year. The timelines are, are going to be hard to figure out simply because when you look at the Green NDP agreement, it's an agreement that's effectively made to ensure that the government never loses confidence. <laughs> There's one section in there that says basically no matters, no votes are going to be votes of confidence, even budget votes. And you kind of go, what? And then it goes on to say, but the government's overall budgetary policy would be considered a matter of confidence. Well, what, is, what the hell does that mean? Um, where, what, what are going to be considered confidence votes in this legislature? But what they're doing is, my, my kind of first blush at this, is that they're basically trying to ensure that even if some members are absent, if ministers are off doing whatever, and they end up losing the occasional vote, that none of those votes are seen as matters of confidence. So that basically means that to bring down this government, Christy Clark is and the Liberals will attempt probably to uh, put forward when they think the time is ripe uh, a motion of non-confidence when it's an opposition day, and hopefully you know maybe the numbers are in their favor at that point. But the other possibility is just that this agreement falls apart, and if that happens, then you're you're more likely to find yourself in an election. So my last question is: if there is one thing that you would want commons listeners to better understand about the balance between our written and unwritten constitutions what would it be well it would be that the uh, the unwritten constitutions are actually the foundation of the the written aspects so you can only understand the written aspects by understanding the unwritten aspects and therefore what what i would encourage listeners to take away is we we need a better articulation of those unwritten rules because otherwise we're at the mercy of political parties that will torque them and distort them to their own ends. And similarly, we're, we're, we're at the mercy to some extent of American impressions about how our system works that leave us dischanted and, and confused and disappointed. And a first step I would say is to actually try and begin clarifying for, for everybody what those rules are so that we don't, uh, we don't find ourselves fully at the mercy of partisan gamesmanship when it comes to the application of these rules. The greater clarity we can have around them, the better. All right, Philippe Legasse, Associate Professor and Barton Chair at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Thank you so much for joining Canada Land Commons today. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y, last name C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. You can follow me on Twitter at D-Rodrigue. That's D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Follow me at R-M Comedy. If you have trouble spelling that, I apologize. Follow Canada Land Commons on Twitter at Canada Land CMNS. Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash canadaland. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg, and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do on this show, please support us. So we've been making comments for five years now.
It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.